Today is the fifth Sunday of Lent and next Sunday means we will have a Passion Sunday or Palm Sunday when we examine the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. So the reading for this week is Jesus just outside Jerusalem. According to some of the Gospels he spent some time in Jerusalem and now he's just out a couple of kilometres away in the town of Bethany, the village of Bethany with his friends. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There he gave a dinner for him. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used it to steal what was put in it. Jesus said, leave her alone. She brought it so that I might, she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. As I said, this story takes place a couple of kilometres away from Jerusalem, just outside what would be a suburb basically these days. And we know that it happens very near the end of Jesus' life. His entry into Jerusalem triggers the last events of his life. In chapter 11, just prior to this chapter, the Pharisees and the other Jewish leaders were already plotting to have Jesus arrested and killed. In a few verses later on, they decide that they should do the same for Lazarus because he's clearly one of Jesus' followers and a problem in his own right, so he needs to be arrested and killed. And it makes sense because Jesus is an insurrectionist. He keeps calling for people to be giving God priority, not the Roman emperor. And at any time... In the Jewish calendar, that would be a problem. But in the days before Passover, it's like a match to a keg of powder. So anything they could do to shut that down made perfect sense to those who were in authority. And Jesus' determination to go forward into Jerusalem, knowing what was likely to happen, what always happened, to people who spoke out like Jesus did. His determination must have been very clear to his friends, Martha, Mary and Lazarus. And they knew that if he was determined to go and determined to go at the worst time of the year, the beginning of Passover, the chances of him getting out alive were next to none. 
So here's this inevitable event. Jesus is determined to go forward. I'm sure his friends must have made attempts to dissuade him. But at this point, that's too late. So there they all are. And we have the story of two people and their response to these, this determination by Jesus. And of course, that's the great biblical idea, two people, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau, the prodigal son and his prodigal brother that we heard about last week. So we're kind of setting up to understand how two people are going to respond to this. The first one is Judas, one of the 12 disciples. Now we know that the number 12 is symbolic in all of Israel's history. So the chances of there being only 12 disciples who gather around Jesus is, is, is unlikely. Uh, and in fact, Luke is very clear that there were more than 12. But the 12 seem to be set aside and special, and Judas was one of those. And he critiques Mary's actions. She's doing this extraordinary activity with Jesus, this extraordinarily embarrassingly intimate activity. Which is the picture on the notice sheet and on the wall. This is by a, a, an Indian uh, Hindu Christian uh, artist who only died, I think, about uh, 10 years ago. Um, and you can see in that the, the intimacy of this experience. But why is he critiquing it? I mean, it's like critiquing somebody spending a lot of money on a plane ticket at the last minute when they're most expensive to fly across the other side of the world to be with someone who they love who's dying. You, you, you don't criticise that, do you? That, that would seem like the, completely the wrong understanding of what's being experienced here. Or, and I've had this experience myself, somebody is dying in a hospice and their friends and relatives are there, but they can't be present to the dying of this person. So they're busy doing things. They're organising things. They're tidying up the room sometimes. You'll see people wandering around the room, making sure the flowers are organised. They just can't face the moment they're in. Or, and this is a true story in my own experience, a man who in the last weeks of his life knowing he was going to die, knowing that the, the, the diagnosis that the doctors giving had given him had proven true all the way along, was on the phone, hunched over his desk because he couldn't sit up properly, fighting with the phone company about a bill that hadn't been settled to his satisfaction. It was harrowing to watch. It was horrible to be present at it. Somebody totally misunderstanding what's going on in this moment. But it's not an accidental misunderstanding, it's a chosen misunderstanding, it's a flight from reality. He is trying to force his version of rationality, Judas's, onto this extraordinary situation which doesn't match up with ordinary rationality. And this is before we discover in the brackets that he's stealing from the purse. So he's not even living up to his own version of the way things should be. He's so deeply living a fantasy world that he can't even recognise his own duplicity when he talks about the needs of the poor. He thinks somehow he can talk the world into being the way he wants it to be. 
And maybe it's coming out of his own fear of what will happen if Jesus is arrested. If it was well known that he had 12 particular followers and Judas was one of them, his own life was going to be in danger, as we discover later in the Gospel of Luke's version, that it seemed to be true. And the question he asked is sort of real enough, but it's this disembodied kind of question. Why was this perfume not sold and the money given to the poor? It's that kind of thing. Why don't they? Or why don't you all do this, that or the other thing? You sometimes hear it, in, in, even in, within our congregation here, people would say, you ought to do, or you ought to, as if the person speaking is not one of the you. As if the congregation is another group of people and you're just a visitor. It's a disembodied sense. There were lots of ways he could have anguished out the question of all this money and the importance of caring for the poor. But this disembodied setting apart. Why was this perfume not sold? If you have the unfortunate experience of looking at the comments on some uh, web pages of what people will say when they try to express themselves from their heart. There's all kinds of pontificating from people banging away angrily at keyboards. He's living a fantasy world that's not even connected with the reality of what's going on in that very moment. And you know why, we, why I can say this is because this is the, live, the life I live so much of the time. I get anxious and angry that the world isn't fitting the way it's supposed to. And it only takes a small thing sometimes. My car will break down. Which is not unexpected. I mean, that's what cars will eventually do. And it's not a surprise. And if I told you my car broken down, you would barely, it would just be not a yawn. Like, that's what happens. But even a little thing like that can sometimes set me so much on edge that I'm somehow deep inside angry with the world, that I'm not getting it moving the way I want it to. Rather than the calm acceptance that, yeah, something's gone wrong with it. It's probably going to cost me a heap of money. And it's going to be more complicated than I thought it was. And I don't know whether I should sell it and get another one or get it fixed. Yeah, that's just life. So I fall into this all the time. That's why I know what this is about. Then there's the second character, Mary. Probably also a disciple. Not one of the twelve because, you know, they were very keen on men, not so keen on women, you know, the same old story. But certainly there were lots of women disciples and Luke seems to make that clear. She recognised what moment she was living in right now. She already had embalming perfume. She was already preparing for the death, possibly the death of Jesus, as she saw it maybe even further back, his determination never to step back and where that's likely to lead. And she's used to dealing with death. Her brother who we have this extraordinary story in the previous chapter of Jesus bringing him back to life. Her brother had died. And she's acknowledging in the inevitability of this moment of truth that this is where this is going to lead for Jesus. And Jesus says a little bit later on in his final conversation, we don't know when it happened, but John has it placed near the very end of Jesus' life, when he says... 
to his followers, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And it's as if knowing this truth of what is about to happen to Jesus somehow is setting Mary free. The perfume becomes the symbol of her understanding of the reality, the, the, the certainty of the situation. And it's partly because if Jesus is a political enemy of Rome and therefore of the rulers of Judaism at the time, then he's most likely to be crucified. That's the death of a, of a political prisoner, political criminal. And if you are crucified, you're cut down and thrown out. There's no burial rites. There's no opportunity for embalming. So it's that sense that she sees the truth in the moment and uses the moment to do that work now. She is somehow free of what she wishes the world were like, of what it's supposed to be like, and she manages to live within it as it really is. And she does what she knows to be right and proper. She does the right thing in the right moment. And you know how I know that? Because I've done that sometimes. I could probably give you a short list on the back of a, a Coles receipt. Maybe I've done it more and I just haven't noticed it. But sometimes I've been in the right place at the right time and I've been in the right moment. And I've been able to understand in a way that if I wasn't there, if I wasn't mentally and emotionally there, I might have missed it. Because I've done that plenty of times. And the way Mary anoints Jesus, the way she applies the perfume and wipes it with her hair, an extraordinary, intimate and uh, embarrassing to watch act of a woman letting down her hair uh, to a man who she's not related to. She gives herself completely to this. She lives completely in the moment. And we've done a terrible job in the church over the last hundred years particularly of telling ourselves that faith in Christ is something you have in your head. Do you believe in the resurrection? Check. Do you believe in the virgin birth? Check. Do you believe in... And somehow that means something. Never in Jesus' experience is it something that sticks in the head. It's an all-of-body experience. That's why we're going to have communion. Because it's something we're going to actually do. It's not something we're going to think about. If it was only about thought, we could just have a picture of communion up on the wall and we could just look at it and that would be fine because our brains would get it. No, it's never that. Life is not thinking. Life is being. It includes thinking, but it's being. That's why so many meditation techniques that have been up, down, handed down to us over centuries involve us doing something, sitting in a particular way, saying a particular thing, walking the labyrinth doing things because it's a body thing. Mary gives herself totally to this experience. She's living the reality of loss, but somehow in all of the story, she's also living the reality of hope, which I think is, is the conflicting view that you get from the psalm that Richard read and that we sang. It's full of hope and sorrow all at the same time. It's like we're supposed to come out with joy and here we are weeping. It's... It kind of alternates between one thing and another when you look at it closely. 
So we don't understand the story of Lazarus. We don't know why it's there. We don't know what it means that Jesus, after three days, and three days, of course, is a significant number, when we come later in the Gospel to Jesus' own death uh, and being in the grave for three days. We don't really understand it, but the story tells us that Lazarus was dead, and three days later, Jesus called him out of the grave and he came back alive. And I don't know what you will do with that. But what the gospel keeps insisting is that death is not the end of anything. It's the transforming of things. Whether you accept that at the most basic level, that when your body goes into the ground, it becomes part of the humus of the earth and new life grows from it. If that's where you are, that's a perfect place to be. If for you it's much more tangible than that and a sense that, that um, a real event happened in the life of Lazarus and, never, and, and, and nothing was ever the same again, then that's true too because it's a transforming. And we know from the resurrection stories, as we'll hear after Easter, when the, when the disciples met Jesus, even though he'd been out, from out of their company only for three days, they didn't recognise him. They didn't quite know who he was. He was... Jesus, but he didn't sort of look like or feel like or seem like Jesus, and yet he was, and yet he wasn't. So whatever the experience of the transformation that life gives us into death, for Mary, it has hope in it. She's not living the fantasy that Judas is living of trying to force the world to be the way it's supposed to be, even though he himself couldn't live up to it. She's living the world as it is and giving herself to the great moment of sorrow, maybe with, tinged with hope because of her experience with her brother. She was living a terrible and wondrous truth. Let me read your quote of that. I only just discovered recently, or just little sections of it, from um, Angelie Zaran, who... who was an anthropologist. We practice the art of dying while we live, experiencing endings when we say goodbye to people who we'll be separated from for a time. Or when we complete something that has significance. Every night we practice letting go when we release ourselves to sleep and the mysterious place of dreams, trusting that we will return. Late in life, we learn to befriend death and prepare for its arrival. We acknowledge that we've been born, lived, learned and loved. We accept our losses, the roads unexplored, the people we miss and the dreams unfulfilled. We begin to make peace with all that is in and around us. We reject nothing and cling to nothing. We simply observe the ebb and flow of our life. When we make the conscious choice of living not in the past or the future, but in each present moment, this takes great courage and the ability to make peace with your life. To live without hope or fear, to let go without regret, to know that you have fully lived. This is where the path of fearlessness leads and where we rest in expanded, unlimited peace.